everyone always has something to say relative to education. I think the fact that so many people have opinions and perspectives on the schools is wonderful. School districts are very complicated. I will tell you that assumptions get made and sometimes they're correct and many times they are not. And I want to help people understand. We are educating kids for their future, not our past. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Leading Education Podcast. I'm Jeff Rose and today is a continuation from last week. Last week, I started by describing a little bit, actually, of my uh, frustration and my own challenges relative to reopening of schools. And uh, I've been watching from afar, actually supporting districts throughout the country, and just got to a place where I thought I need to talk about this. Now, as opposed to just talk and uh, stand on my soapbox and wax and wane, I actually put out a series of opportunities for people to ask questions, ask people to identify whether they were a teacher, whether they were a, an administrator, a parent, and even a student. And I got some incredible responses. And last week, I just tried to address some of the questions because what I find is we tend to naturally focus on our own environment. What is happening in our school district? And we also tend to focus on what is our situation relative to our definition of safety and how we consider this from a very personal standpoint, which is normal and should happen. And in the meantime, there is a world happening out there and lots of decisions and decision points that are impacting um, lives, most importantly, of our children. And so this conversation is really to try to enlighten us uh, beyond our local environment to help gather perspectives so that, you know, in the long run, I hope someday, some way, we can start providing each other with some level of grace. Um, this has become a very politicized conversation like many things, but this one has become extreme relative to COVID and the impact it's having on our lives and how that is impacting the ability for our kids to go to school, whether that is going to school at home because they are online or whether they're face-to-face -face, and the amount of misperceptions, um, in my opinion, is actually extreme. So. I know that I can't handle this conversation on my own, which is why I'm going to be doing a series. It won't be long, but it'll be a few more um, episodes. And today I'm thrilled to have uh, a friend of mine. Actually, we've gone back uh, for a number of years, Dan Gordon with us. And I'll, I'll, I'll describe a little bit about Dan Gordon and then Dan's gonna jump in. And really, I just have some questions prepared because uh, Dan has a really, really interesting perspective. Now, Dan is the Senior Legal um, and Policy Advisor for Ed Council. Ed Council is a mission-based educational consulting firm that combines significant experience in policy, strategy, law, and, advoca and advocacy to drive improvements in the U.S. education system. Now, Dan was actually formally served in the D.C. Public Schools as a Senior Advisor for School Design, Deputy uh, Chief Academic Officer for College and Career Readiness, Early Childhood Education, Language Acquisition, and Out-of-School Time Programs, and Chief of Staff for the Chief Academic Officer. Previously, he was the lead English teacher at Columbia Heights Education Campus in Washington, D.C. He started his career as a trial attorney at the U.S. Department of Justice, Civil Rights Division, and Educational Opportunity Section, where he enforced federal education, uh, anti-discrimination statutes across the nation. You know, Dan has this really amazing and rich history and to this day is just doing really important work supporting um, school districts and what would actually in turn be thousands upon thousands of students in school. So, Dan, uh, I welcome you. And uh, my first question is just to, just to check in. How are you? I'm curious as to how this has impacted you personally as well as professionally. And uh, thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's it's always great to talk to you. Uh, and if it takes coming on a podcast, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. Um, well, I, I think the way it's affected me personally starts with just recognizing how much luckier I am than many um, in terms of personal and professional um, impacts. Um, my wife and I have jobs that allow us to work from home. 
um, pretty easily. And um, we have three healthy kids um, who are, you know, um, getting through this the best they can and the best we can. Um, but we've just got a, a lot of um, great things. We have a lot of things in our life that make this easier, even though it feels day to day really hard. Um, yeah. So our school, uh, you know, our kids go to D.C. public schools uh, school. It's actually they go to the same school that my wife did uh, growing up. We live about three blocks from uh, where she where she was born, and yeah, yeah, keeping on the family tradition, and um, but it's it's an incredibly diverse school. So it's, it's a it's a dual language school, English and Spanish, and kids attend it. Um, it's a neighborhood school, but we draw kids from all over DC, and um, it's been as as our principal said, um, you know, we're all in the same storm, uh, but we're not all in the same boat. And that has really resonated with me um, throughout this as I try and keep in mind, um, you know, just how, how fortunate we are uh, to be healthy and, and able to provide for our families and have some of the real challenges um, be blunted a little bit. Um, and so then in my work, which is, you know, our, our work at Education Council is really designed to help improve the education system overall, but particularly for those students and families who, are, who have been, you know, least served um, by the system and are furthest from opportunity. And those kind of equity challenges um, aren't new, uh, right? But they've been revealed in all sorts of ways and, and then made, made worse um, by, the, by the pandemic as well. You know, can I, um, you, you mentioned uh, really supporting your work being about supporting students uh, with that equity lens. And um, which, which is interesting in that um, I mentioned earlier on that it's so easy for people to just to focus on their own kids, which makes tremendous sense. You talked about how you feel fortunate and, and blessed. Um, but who do you, th at this point in time, do you see some of the, the issues relative to equity and some of the struggling families at, at times uh, being ignored? Do you think we're doing a good job highlighting those, those students and families throughout this process? I love the, you know, we're in the same storm, but not the same boat. I'm going to try to steal that as best I can. So, so we're, we're educators. You're supposed to steal as much as you Oh, yeah, that's right. We're great thieves, right? So what do you notice as it terms to the, the equity discussion amidst this kind of storm? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question, Jeff. Um, there's not one, so I'm, a, I'm trained originally as a lawyer, so all my answers to hard questions are, it depends. <laughs> uh, and, and so, you know, I think um, there are kind of, so I think it's very easy for folks to realize there's an equity issue when it comes to digital access, right? So not all kids have access to an, a device, a laptop or a tablet, and they don't all have access to, to um, high-speed internet. And, and that's, that's a leap, right? To like, to get yourself out of thinking of your own situation and, and what your children have to think, okay, you know, this school or this system also has to make plans that include families that don't have those devices. And I think it, it's sort of like a, it's like a layer, the first layer of the onion. And you can get people pretty easily, I think, to think about that layer, right? Okay, well, then let's solve this. You know, someone should buy them a laptop or, and, and figure out the Wi-Fi. You know, but it's not as easy as that because it's it's also there are even if you have a device, well, how many children are depending on that device in the house, right? Is it is it one is it one device per family or is it a device per child? Is there even a, pl a place in a home that's um, a child can learn in, right? It's it's not it's it's part of digital access, but it's not digital, right? It's about having a flat surface and quiet and you know like the the kind of space that you need um, to do learning. So. Even something as, I think, as not superficial is the wrong word, but as easy to grasp as tech, as digital access, I think, gets deeper when you start going into it. Um, or, 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 you know, yes, you have Wi-Fi access, but it's not enough to support the kind of educational technology that folks need to use. But then that's just one thing, right? Then, then you've got realities that are just really hard for individual people to, to grapple with. What is it like for students who are experiencing homelessness during this? Right? We have millions of children who attend public schools but do not have a stable home. And, um, right? Or children who, who have food insecurity and, and, are, and are hungry 
and spending part of their day wondering if they're going to get enough food uh, to, to then be able to focus on learning if they have access uh, to digital things, right? Or students um, with special needs, right, who, who, are, who are, have all the potential in the world, right, but need some particular supports to be able to access the, the, the grade level curriculum um, that they're being taught. Those supports are not initially designed to work in this kind of an environment, right? So there, there's all sorts of things that, that happen um, when you start peeling back the onion, right? And that doesn't even get to things like, how is the pandemic affecting the adults in children's lives, right? Or, or is the adult someone who has to leave the home to work all day and you know, children are left alone or in the care of someone else? What is it like to have um, people in your, in your life who are sick or who have died? Um, you know, and, and the equity thing, you've probably seen the statistics, the coronavirus is not hitting, um, you know, some people when it first came out said, it, you know, the virus doesn't care who you are, or what the color of your skin is, it's the great equalizer. Well, the truth is, that's not true, right? It's, it's a disease that's layered on top of all of the other ways that our society is not built to be equal. And so you see incredibly higher rates of, of getting sick, and even higher rates of dying in the black community in the Latino community. Um, and part of that is, is because of the way our healthcare system works. Part of it is because the way our economy works and, and who are the people that are still going out into the world and doing essential jobs that can't be done uh, like I can from my computer in the safety of my home. And um, so, you know, you just, you know, you have parts of DC where I live that are white and more affluent and it's this theor somewhat theoretical thing, right? We're all taking precautions to protect ourselves from this disease. And then you have other parts of the city where just about everybody knows someone who's died, right? Or multiple members of their family have gotten sick and potentially died from this virus. And so when you think about learning in that scenario uh, or coming back to school and what those, what different students are going to need, um, the equity piece is real. And um, I don't, I think that there are a lot of people paying a lot of attention to it, Jeff, but you know, not everyone, not everyone has equal commitments to equity under the best of circumstances, right? And so then you throw a situation like this where things are so messed up and everyone, everyone has needs that they didn't have before, um, and it becomes really hard to prioritize it. So I, I worry a lot about kids experiencing homelessness, kids with disabilities, English learners, low-income kids. I mean, there's, there's the, the list kind of goes on and on, um, so I, I, I worry a lot about that. Well, what I appreciate you as you articulate your worries, Dan, is that um, you started by saying that you feel fortunate. Um, I appreciate that you can feel fortunate and be worried to the degree you are about other people. I think if only um, we, we, we could get to that place, right, personally. So I, I mentioned last week, it's people get really hung up right now on the trends of, are you opening or are you closing? Right? Those are like the... You know, we almost assume that that's what's happening. Of course, that is what's happening. Um, those are some trends. But there's other trends, too, that sometimes aren't being picked up relative to how schools are navigating their, quote, reopening decision points. What are you noticing? Because I'm, I'm trying to take the listener uh, beyond just what they see every day um, and the emails that they receive from their school district. So... I'm just curious, what are, you, what are some of the trends that you're seeing out there throughout the country relative to reopening? Sure. So one thing, and this is, you kind of just hit on this, but one thing I think um, to start with is that schools are reopening, right? It's, the question is, are school buildings reopening, right? There, there, there will be education, <laughs> there, students will be attending, teachers will be working, and it's just a question of the context. And I don't mean to say that 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 difference of context doesn't matter. It's, it's a huge difference. But I do worry sometimes that, um, that even the language that some folks use is like, our school is gonna open again. And it's really important to remind everyone <laughs> that schools are opening, right? It's just about whether school buildings are. Um, so, and you know this, but just to, just to start from the beginning, you know, most districts in the country engaged in what, what I call scenario planning over the summer, right? There are three main scenarios, right? All, all in person on one side, all remote on the other, and then some kind of hybrid or mixed model of uh, in person and remote in the middle. And, um, you know, now that there's 
been an uptick in in the virus outbreaks in so many states. Um, you know, the big trend is that more and more and more districts are announcing that, um, regardless of what they had planned to do, they're shifting towards an all remote opening. Um, and uh, but I, I, I some, so some and some folks have said. You know, well, you should have predicted this from the beginning, and, and you should have spent your whole summer just planning for making remote learning the very best it can. And I, I, um, I hear that, but it's sort of one of those hindsight is twenty twenty moments. It, I think it was a really responsible move by by school districts and superintendents to engage in scenario planning because you just didn't know in in May and June what was going to be happening uh, by the end of the summer. And unfortunately, right, our country we haven't done everything that we could have to have the scenario plans be options. Um, you know, we we opened bars before schools and we made it hard for people to really embrace the idea of covering their faces in a way that drives down the transmission rate. And as a result, we're in a situation where all those scenarios, um, which, you know, try to balance all these different interests and balance the need for safety and balance the need for instruction and all of these different competing interests and increasingly, uh, districts are having to put those plans on the shelf and start with an all remote opening. Now, I'm I'm still glad they did that planning work because at some point we're going to get the virus under control and, and more buildings are going to be able to open for more kids for longer times. And so all of that planning is going to still come back to play. But the number one trend, I would say, is that um, uh, districts are increasingly announcing that they're going to have to open in an all remote scenario and then kind of wait and see for when they decide it's uh, safe to, to begin some kind of in-person in uh, instruction. You know, um, the, the 2020 piece, you know, uh, that you acknowledge is, is so true. Let's, let's rewind all of us, myself included, and, and likely, likely you, six months ago, four months ago, right? We were treating this differently, right? We were treating this as, um, number one, we were all concerned we thought that we all need to be responsible and do the right thing for a finite amount of time. And then we would get back. Someday, some way, we would get back to normal. But we define that as a, probably a matter of months. I don't think at that time the majority of people assumed we wouldn't be reopening school in fall. Right? We thought we were going to have a rough spring. We even had districts, right, and communities hoping that we'd be able to pull off regular graduations and get kids back to school prior to, right? And, and clearly that, that did not happen, and we figured out these, you know, interesting ways to hold graduations, but then also assumed, okay, let's hunker down, continue to go, and this will go away. We did not necessarily prepare for this uptick, right? And yes, I have similar opinions about why the uptick, but... Anyway, it's yeah. anyway, it's well, we and, and also, you know, in your in, as you rewind us, the the, the real, um, you know, the real challenging outbreaks were pretty confined, right, to just to certain parts of the country. So it also that that mentality of, you know, yes, we need to take this seriously, but uh, was also understandable, right, because you're sitting in a community that isn't experiencing an outbreak and you're not seeing people get sick and or the health system taxed. Um, and now, unfortunately, it, it's, you know, the, the outbreaks are so much more widespread, right, with so many states trending in the wrong direction um, that, I th you know, my, it's hard to know, right? But my sense is that people are getting a, a, a better understanding <laughs> of it because it's closer, right? And, and it's, it's something that people are experiencing more directly now. Last week I mentioned, and you're the perfect person to ask this, um, I, I notice and being a past superintendent myself in some very different contexts and different districts, I know the role that politics play in the work, right? I know that um, to, to really lead a school district, it's political work. And yet, say, superintendents and people in the central office are not politicians. They just happen to have political work. And I'm just curious about what are you seeing in terms of the political challenges kind of th that are maybe getting in the way relative to the decision-making process? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So uh, first, I, I should acknowledge, although I've, I've worked for five years in D.C. public schools in the central office, um, I have never sat in your shoes, right? I've never been the, the, the uh, person with the ultimate responsibility of running a school district, and I stand in awe 
of people like you and your your former colleagues um, in the profession because on on the on a best day on, under the best conditions being a school district superintendent has got to be one of the most complex and complicated jobs in the world and we are very far from the best day and the best circumstances um, so as you know uh, one of my one of my main jobs um, uh, at education councils I'm fortunate enough to to help lead a, an organization a membership organization called the large countywide and suburban district consortium uh, it's it's a it's a hard to parse name but it's a consortium of large countywide and suburban school districts um, yeah that just that just rolls off your tongue I mean that the, the way that right and and I used to be a member of that <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, you were you were twice a member because uh, both of your previous districts uh, Beaverton in Oregon and, and Fulton County in Georgia uh, were members and um, yeah I'm I you know, I'm a DC person and a and a bit of a policy wonk, so I feel like I'm only allowed to have one acronym per podcast. <laughs> so, so, and I won't even try to do ours because LCSDC just doesn't uh, just doesn't work. Um, but anyway, it, it's it, it's a it's a it's a membership organization of large, increasingly diverse, um, and relatively high performing, high functioning school districts across the country. Together, they the districts educate 1.8 million kids in communities that represent the whole nation, right? 60% um, kids of color, 40, 45% uh, kids living in poverty. Um, and and so I, I have the great blessing to, to be able to engage with the superintendents of these districts and, and hear what they're, what they're thinking about, what they're challenged with. And so your question, uh, it's a long way of getting to the question about the way that politics are, are impacting them. Um, I would love to be able to tell you that the only factors that are at play here are public health and education, what what students need uh, to meet their needs, and but that's just not the way it is, right? Um, school districts are are political institutions that exist in really complicated political systems that have, you know, local politics and state politics, and then of course federal politics, um, and even within those levels, you've got multiple political players, right? So you may have um, if if it's a city. Um, uh, uh, city-based district, right? You, you not only have your, your school board that the superintendent answers to, but you also have the mayor, right? And whoever's the head of the public health department. Um, then you've got, you know, the governor and then separately the education, the state education agency. Some states, the head of that agency is, is, them, is themselves a, an elected person, right? Um, and then you've got the, the you know, the, the public health folks. And, um, as one superintendent told me um, in frustration with the lack of, of guidance um, that was coming from their state, uh, there are folks who want all of the authority, but none of the responsibility. And um, there's lots of reasons why that might be the case, um, but I think politics is part of it. These are hard decisions and nobody, you can't please everybody. Um, one, one, a lot of districts have been surveying their, their families, right, about those three scenarios, um, all remote, all in person or hybrid. And invariably, it sort of comes back a third, a third, a third um, of, of people's preferences. And so one of the superintendents said, well, you know, the one thing we know is that whatever we choose, we're going to we're going to tick off more than half of our <laughs> of our families. Um, and, and so I think some of that, you know, gets at it. You, you've got a, a state, let's just say like, uh, you know, a governor has got their own politics at the state level, and then they're getting political pressure up from the local communities and then down from the administration that is unfortunately um, taking, taking steps to politicize this decision-making in, in ways that I really just don't think are helping. <laughs> um, and, it, and it becomes really hard. And schools, districts, and, and their staff and their superintendents are trying the best they can to make the best decision. And, um, but oftentimes they're doing it without any sense of what the rules of the road are gonna be. Um, and in some states, the governor has said, you know, local superintendents, this is your call. You, you, you run with it. And others, they've said, you need to wait for us to decide at the state what's gonna happen. But meanwhile, we're not making a decision. <laughs> and uh, and this, the beginning of school is, is approaching and approaching. And, you know, people in the community are not calling the governor and saying, how come I don't know what's happening in my schools, right? They're, they're calling their school district and saying, you're my, you're my child's educator. You know, tell me what's gonna happen uh, to my child. Assure me that they're gonna get what they need and they're gonna be safe and, 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 and. Um, so I think the political nature of the school district 
uh, superintendency has really never been uh, more intense than it is right now. Yeah. You know, know, um, um, it's... Oh, Jeff, can I say one other thing? Oh, please. (laughs) Sorry. So uh, the other thing is that, you know, the virus, the situation of the virus is, is often different in different parts of the state. Right. So you've got you've got, you know, uh, a, a community, a, a leader who's really trying to, like, grapple with what's our community situation and what's the best decision we can make for us. And they are experiencing, you know, an outbreak of the virus. But then there's other parts of the same state. Right. That that aren't experiencing it at all. But meanwhile, the, the elected officials. Right. And the and the governor's stakeholders don't don't change. I mean, it, it, they, their stakeholders are across that variation. And so some of it, you know, I don't want to just. I don't want to just say that, you know, indecision or bad decisions is simply a matter of politics. Like there's also just, it's just a really complex thing, right? And if you're a state decision maker and you've got, you know, half of your stakeholders saying A and half of your stakeholders saying not A, um, you know, it's a really hard thing to balance. And so then for families and folks maybe listening to your podcast, you know, they're experiencing it within their own community, Um but not every community is experiencing it the same. Or as we talked about earlier, even communities within your community, right, are, are experiencing things very differently. Well, it, it's true, Dan, the, what you just said is, is actually the majority of states, that is the, the trend and the challenge, the majority of states, right? So um, you're in DC, I live in Georgia, the, the Atlanta metro area, um, our state's a pretty good example, right? We're a, we're a hotbed here in Georgia in terms of our increasing numbers. Um, but it depends where in the state you're standing. So the metro environment is dramatically different relative to the number of cases that we're experiencing in comparison to a lot of other districts throughout the state. There was an article in the AJC this morning that described that actually the majority of districts in Georgia, in terms of numbers of districts, will likely be moving into a reopening of the buildings plan. Comparison compared to the metro area, which, by the way, is going to get all the attention because of the majority of students um, and, you know, it's surrounding Atlanta. So it's that kind of environment that you described is happening in most states. It might not be as intense as in Georgia, but it is happening. So and my clients, some of them are in metro areas and some of them are not. And when I'm on the phone with them, it's different depending on who I'm talking to. Yeah, I'm so glad you checked that. That's that's a bit of a, a blind spot for me, right? Because a, a I, I work, I tend to work mostly with large districts. Um, B, as you said, large districts end up getting most of the press attention, and certainly the national um, education press attention. And third, the desire to to support and pay attention to how this is all affecting students and families who are furthest from opportunity, low-income students, homeless students, students of color, tends to be also in those larger metro districts. Um, That said, there's obviously huge challenges for families living in rural areas. Um, I I just saw something about uh, in California, right, one of the biggest sources of outbreaks are actually um, uh, families of uh, people, you know, who who work on farms, right, who pick produce. And um, migrant families, right, that are that are working on those farms, and those aren't kids that are necessarily attending big metro districts, but those so those smaller rural districts are are also going to be grappling with things. But to your point about Georgia, I saw there's there's a dis- there's a school that's opening like this week um, in a in a small district in Georgia, and then you've got Fulton and Cobb and Gwinnett and those big uh, metro uh, districts announcing that they're going to start all remote. And what's interesting is that several of the districts in Georgia, when they were doing their scenario planning, had decided that their, their two options would be that families could opt into an all-remote, um, right, for their own reasons or health or the health of someone living in their home, um, but that not necessarily doing a hybrid as the in-person option, but an all-in-person as the, as the in-person option. And, and, uh, and so to go from a scenario where districts had been ready to open the buildings for all who wanted it, five days a week to, to all the way to we're only going to do a remote to start the school year is quite a big shift um, that, yeah. that, I, that I see in Georgia that in other parts of the country, I think, had, had been trending more towards we'll give people an all remote option, but then our in-person will be a hybrid uh, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll do that mainly as a way to keep class sizes smaller. Yeah, and, and you know, you're right um, that easily, myself included, our attention gets drawn to 
these these the larger metro areas throughout the country. And for the listener to know that it's important to know the majority of districts throughout the country are either small and rural or uh, medium size, which is a really big category too, um, and more of a um, you know a suburban environment. And so you know that doesn't mean that they hold large number of students, but they are decision-making bodies throughout the country that sometimes are left out of really important discussions because you know they just tend not to be in the places to get as much you know national press. And so. You mentioned like the lose-lose of this, right, earlier, and, and it, it is. In fact, I did a podcast months ago in March or April, and it had to do with, I was interviewing Brian Hightower, superintendent here in Cherokee County, and we called it, um, oh, snow day on steroids, I think. And this was having to, you know, make decision on sending kids home, right? And, and how, and now, looking back on even that concept, it, it doesn't do it justice, right? Because there's so many decision points now for school districts that no matter what, you're right, the majority are not going to be satisfied. It's impossible. Now, on a snow day, a snow day or a weather day, you can actually choose the best loss and just tip the scales in terms of majority. You can figure that out. You choose the best loss. A situation like this, it's not even close. So that, in hindsight, we should have named them something different, but at the time, that made sense to us. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think you know that I, um, so I lived up north where I got very used to, to real winters, and then after college, I actually um, started my career working in Fulton County, of all places, um, through Hands on Atlanta Youth Corps. I was a teacher assistant at College Park Elementary School in South Fulton County, and um, it's funny that you, when you, <laughs> the different views of what constitutes a bad snow day, <laughs> are really different right. in Georgia than in other parts of the country. <laughs> uh, That's right. But, That's right. But yeah, well, and speaking of snow days, I think those are probably gone forever, right? Now that we're going to build the muscle and the infrastructure for remote learning, um, snow days are going to become remote learning days, um, which, which, you know, it'll be interesting to see which innovations during this pandemic actually stick, you know, once we're past it. And, and, I, and I sense that... that um, remote learning during snow days might be one of those small ones. Um, so, so, so with that, let me ask you this question then, because I want you to go further into detail. What innovations are you seeing right now? I mean, you know, we tend about the, the three choices, but all the innovations in between, are you seeing any trends with innovative work that's happening because of this level of chaos and challenge? So, so first I'll say, I think we need to pay attention to the innovations, not just in the planning, but, but as things go, right? And, and the most innovative districts are ones actually, I think that uh, take a, a learner's posture towards things, right? And, and engage in, in what some people call design thinking, right? You, you test something, you don't, you don't make this huge plan and then say, okay, we've, we've spent all this time in our boardroom, right, figuring out a plan, and now we're going to execute the plan, and we're going to be the best executors possible. That, that's often the way that high-functioning system, um, uh, systems have worked in the past, but it's really not well-suited for a situation like this that's so fluid and where the, the baseline rules of the road are changing as the science develops. Um, and so I think what we'll see is, I'll, I'll, I'll return to your question in a second about some innovative things I think that people are planning to do, but I think the most innovative thing will be districts that are ready uh, to try something out, pay really close attention to how it's going, and then improve it and try something different that'll get a better result. So uh, like an iterating process of continuously testing things and learning from them and improving, and that will be the big innovation, and, and who knows what those things will be. But there's a lot of folks like me who, who aren't the ones doing the actual work, but are trying to support the folks doing the work and learn from it, who are going to be paying really close attention to trying to find those, those gems, those bright spot ideas, and then do the best we can to spread those around the country. Um, in terms of what folks are doing now, so I think even within the, um, the three sort of standard models, there are some innovative things. So the number one thing I think where innovation is existing is in places that are thinking about um, how to differentiate their model uh, for, for in two ways. One is differentiated by level, so by grade level or school type. So let's not treat all or everyone the same, but let's treat elementary school students one way and middle school students a, a different way and high school students a third way. 
and and some of that is based on the science, right? So um, it seems that it's riskier to put high school students together uh, than it is to put uh, uh, kindergartners together. Um, and I don't pretend to be an epidemiologist, right? But, but that's generally the way the science is working out. Um, and then part of it is learning, right? It's, it's harder for young children to, to, to engage in distance learning and be um, uh, focused uh, without a, 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 ta- a, a trained adult, right? Um, facilitating their, their learning easier for older kids and teenagers to be more independent. Um, and so, you know, the trend in that kind of differentiation is to the extent that we can bring anyone in person, let's bring young children in person as much as possible. And, and then maybe differentiate it so that maybe high school students do a lot more remote. Um, sometimes you see that as high school students will come one day a week and elementary school students will come two or three times a week. And then other times you see it as, no, 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 there's a district um, in Bellevue, uh, Washington, uh, Bellevue School District outside of Seattle. Their, their plan, when they, can, when they can implement it, is pre-K through second grade, full-time in the building. And then third through 12th grade, two days a week. And, and for those pre-K through second, part of it is that idea that you know, kids just have needs. Uh, that are really hard to, to be met when when it's uh, uh, when they're doing distance learning, um, and then part of it is like what's the kind of learning they're doing, right? And and in th- those early years, for example, you're learning foundations of of you're learning phonics, right? You're learning foundations of the English language, and one of the key things there is to be able to see the mouth of the teacher who's teaching you how to make certain sounds, right? How do you make the sh sound, right? And and it's really hard to do that if you can't see the teacher and have the teacher come and like model, you know, making the sh sound right in front of uh, your face. Um, and so, um, so, so I think that's one, what's, that's one innovation. The second way that things are being differentiated is by need. So you'll see districts innovating around, um, okay, who are, the, who are our students who, who need the in-person instruction the most, right? Like what, what's really hard to do from a, in a remote context? And so um, how can we bring those in? So sometimes that's students with, with uh, disabilities, right? There are certain things about their, their, the supports they need that are really best delivered in person. So how can we do that? Then there's English language learners, right? Or there's students who are behind grade level who really need the kind of intense um, small group or one-on-one instruction. And so you see districts talking about, to the extent that we can, we're going to bring these you know, sort of high priority student groups in first. Um, also students who are in like transition years, right? So if you're a ninth grader starting high school, that's a pretty key transition year. And it's, it might be hard to sort of welcome someone into high school and, and do all of the kind of orientation and mindset shifting that you have to do from, from when grades are, are just grades to when grades become things that are going to be on your transcript and, and, and have, you know, more uh, weight behind them. And that's hard to do, uh, without the kind of in-person touch. Um, so that kind of differentiation is one. Um, I think you're, uh, an innovation that I'm excited about that I wish more places were exploring uh, was uh, supplementing whatever they're doing with their staff with um, really intense tutoring. So there aren't a lot of things that in, in the evidence base of education that we, that we have really good evidence like work kind of across the board. High intensity tutoring, or sometimes people call it high dosage tutoring, right, where it's trained tutors working, you know, with, with a set curriculum um, in, and getting us an, an enough, enough time with the student can make a huge difference. And, um, you know, you pair that idea that, you know, one of the challenges with doing tutoring in the normal world, the pre-pandemic world is, well, who are, who are these tutors and how are you going to get people to do this? Well, turns out we have a lot of students who can't go to college and a lot of people who unfortunately are out of work. Um, and it would be... Um, I'm excited by the places that are really trying to lean in to tutoring as a, as a really key um, support. Uh, the state of Governor Haslam, the former governor of Tennessee, uh, has a foundation and, and he's actually launched the Tennessee Tutoring Corps as a statewide uh, tutoring initiative. And then you have some school districts who are also kind of going heavy on that. Some schools are even considering how to use outdoor spaces for learning. Um, and, and, you know, if one of the big problems with the health risk of in-person education is you know, putting students and teachers in a in a room with maybe an old um, ventilation system that doesn't circulate fresh air. Um, how can we leverage outdoor spaces at least when the weather allows? And that might be outdoor spaces on a school property, or maybe it's coordinating with your parks and recs department, right, to to set up outdoor uh, learning in in other parts of your city or, or county. 
nothing is going to be a, no innovation is going to be a perfect thing, right? Where you hear it and you're like, ah, like that's the silver bullet. Everything is fine, right? There are obviously challenges when it comes to outdoor learning, um, but, but it's an innovation that I think is worth exploring. I, I loved hearing about these innovations. And the reason I, 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 I really appreciate hearing it is because I too have been uh, tracking what are some of these kind of creative ways throughout the country that districts are navigating this in- incredible challenge. And I find myself um, frustrated because um, I know what potentially is possible. And I only wish other districts could. And then I can transition to this Monday morning quarterback where I think this is what people should be doing and I forget. It's so easy to forget. Bottom line is, it once again is because a lot of other things get in the way. Some of the political nuance that you've described, some of those systems that just get in the way. And so it, it's not a blame on leaders at all. It's some of them, it's just the conditions for which and they are working creates this challenge that doesn't allow them to get to that place of design thinking to think about how can we become, you know, uh, how can we make sure that we can adapt and adjust and, you know, be critical thinkers along the way relative to the system that can best support kids aligned to maybe prioritizing needs. So it's tricky. Yeah, it really it's, it's such a it's such a tension, Jeff, and you, you nailed it because there's part of you that wants to say, okay, this is an opportunity to reinvent education. Right. Like we should never go back to the the status quo before the pandemic. Like this is the chance to, you know, families have gotten a much closer view of of the stat of like what actually happens in learning and and how both how hard it is and how much more their kids need. And so let's let's come back and use this as an opportunity. Right. That's one half. The other half is this is a pandemic. Right. People are are doing the best they can to survive a once in a generation global pandemic, right? That is that is making people sick and is killing people and is making people lose their jobs. I mean, there's the the sort of trauma of of living through it is also it's not like the people who who sit in your former shoes and and the school district staff are not experiencing this themselves, right? Like they right. they have their own families, they have people they know who are, who have gotten sick or that or that have you know, medical conditions that make them really at risk. Um, there are systems in place, right, for really good reasons. There's procurement systems that protect the taxpayer, right, from having their tax, their their their, their taxes misused, right, or, or uh, not being able to account for how public school systems are spending public dollars. And yet those systems weren't set up to sort of be like, okay, you know, you've had this great idea. Let's tomorrow go spend the money on that great idea. And if it doesn't work, that's okay because we're going to, you know, that there's good reasons why the systems don't work like that. But then in a, you get in a moment like this where, where things are so fluid and you want to encourage people to be innovative and out of the box thinking. And, and yet we, we haven't set up school systems to be fluid and, and necessarily right. innovative and, and, and built for being out of the box, right? It is the box. <laughs> and and there's, there, there are some that have over time, right, built up that culture of design thinking or, or innovation and, and then aligned their systems to that. But it's a lot to ask that you, if you're not one of those places, to all of a sudden in the middle of the pandemic when you're trying to get kids food and, and close the digital access gap and, you know, balance all of these, these competing tensions to also then completely reinvent yourself. Um, so I, and I'm guilty of that. Like sometimes I say, this is a, this is an opportunity. And, and then I have to think, no, this isn't an opportunity. This is surviving a pandemic. So I, 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 I'm excited by the innovation and I want to learn about it and spread it like gospel. But I also want to be careful that, you know, that it doesn't become this thing where, um, well, this other district is doing X. Why are, why isn't my district doing X, right? It's a good question to ask. But there might be really good reasons why X just doesn't work for your community. And I, I, I'm guilty of that, too. I'm guilty of a lot of things, actually. So let me, let me um, I kind of saved the, what I think is the most challenging question for last. This is a really hard one because, well, it's hard for me when people asked it of me. And, you know, it's almost the crystal ball question, right? So when's either this going to end or what do you predict is going to happen this year? And so I answer it with this really impressive shrug of my shoulders. That's, that's my strategy. Um, <laughs> so let, let me ask, let me ask you that same question. So, you know, based upon all that you're seeing, uh, 
you know, crystal ball, what do you predict? What do you, what do you think is going to happen? So can I can I can we start by saying there's like ten caveats that I want to say that I won't I won't spend time saying, but yeah, pretend like you're in an elevator and you got to answer this person and uh, and, and leave them satisfied when they get off. Okay, so um, imagine that it, right. Imagine that I just said all these things. Um, nobody. So here's a prediction: nobody will be satisfied. Right. Um, and and I say that as a joke, but also seriously. Right. It, distance learning, for example. There's a lot of evidence that distance learning is not a very effective way for kids to learn, and particularly not effective for kids who, who have some of the challenges that we talked about earlier. Right. And so to expect that systems that, that aren't, I'm totally not answering your question, but to expect that systems that aren't even built to be distance learning systems are suddenly going to not only do it, but like do it better than anyone's ever done it in the history of of research around distance learning, like it's just not going to happen. So one prediction is that nobody's going to be satisfied. Um, a second prediction is that um, we are going to learn a ton this year about how to do this better. And and one of the big challenges will just be how fast can we learn those lessons and act on them. Um, something that that I try and keep in mind. We were talking earlier about design thinking. Is that there's a real power. You sort of combine design thinking with a focus on equity. And there's this idea of that you design for the margins. So, so who, are, who is most marginalized by the current system, right? Let's design, some, let's design a new system to help meet their needs. And, and dollar for donuts, is that the expression? Dollar for donuts. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that solution yeah. will then work better for the vast majority of people in the middle, right? And so some of the innovation efforts are, are here are going to be designing for the margins. And, and if we can do that well, if we can serve our kids with disabilities, if we can serve the kids who, who are, are hungry or, or who, you know, who, who have really challenging um, home environments um, or are behind grade level, right? If, if we can figure that out, then everyone else is going to benefit. And I, and I do think that we're going to um, have some really successful designs for the margin um, that happens. But I, I think, you know, I am not a scientist or a public health person. So, um, you know, I really hope that at some point during this year, we're able to, all systems are able to do in-person um, learning. Um, and, uh, and I think we're going to, I think we're going to just, um, I don't know, I'd like to shrug my shoulders again. And I, I, I hope it's, so I'll, I'll start that over again. I, I think, it, I, I hope at some point during the year, all schools are able to, to provide in-person uh, learning. And I think we're going to learn a lot about what's most important. Um, so, you know, the, the typical thing, traditional thing has been, you know, you bring kids back and you give them a, an academic assessment to figure out where they're at. And then you start teaching your curriculum from A to Z. And that's just not the way it's going to be this year. Right. Like school systems have to, to be much more attentive to the social emotional needs of students, to their mental health needs, to their physical needs. Right. Their nutrition and, and their, their actual health and figure out um you know, there's this the concept in education that's more and more embraced around the whole child, right? That that schools need to educate the whole child, not just the part of the child that does reading, um, writing, and arithmetic. And and I think that kind of shift in, in mindset is going to be accelerated by all this because you're just we're just going to be the the needs are going to be so evident and and so much more uh, salient to the way to helping kids get in a place where they're ready to learn uh, that I think systems are going to really respond to that in in deep ways um in ways that i that i hope stick well and and this this is why a conversation like this gives me and hopefully other people some level of hope only because it's very easy to get uh dragged down to some of the realities that we're facing i i sometimes force myself to think about all that we can and should learn through such a kind of tragic and, and difficult dilemma as this. And so how potentially are we going to move some things that are really important, such as the emphasis on social-emotional learning for our kids, um, forward to a different degree someday, some way? So um, I appreciate you bringing that up. And, you know, I'll just say that no matter what, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you about this. I, I think that you and I could probably talk about this for hours, right? So, um, and in the meantime, for you to just take time out of your busy schedule and kind of in the, here we are in the middle of summer, and I know you're grappling with things too, 
but I was hoping to get um, a, a kind of a global perspective on this and you delivered exactly that. And it's, it's, it's actually what I really, really was hoping for. And I, I love hearing you talk. So thank you so much. That's, that's really nice, Jeff. I, I uh, only know what I know. And most of it is because I, I'm fortunate enough to work with folks like you and, and the superintendents of, um, of districts that are the ones that are really doing the work um, and, are, and are generous enough to share their learning. Um, so I, it's been, this has been a pleasure. I love talking to you. And, and this is a this is a, um, a really complex topic. And so, you know, for folks like you and me, it's fun to dig into those kinds of topics. And I, I wish that um, I wish that it was uh, on happier times. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is uh, Leaning Education. I'm Jeff Rose, and I'm really appreciating having uh, Dan Gordon with me today. This is the second part of a series. We'll add kind of more portions as we move forward. And let me just say that I wish all of you the best. And I know while things are really, really tricky in so many ways and just so challenging, um, I, I just hope that you can uh, find day-to-day -day hope and grace in, in anything. And so um, we, will, we will get through this. It's tricky to say sometimes, but I do believe that. And I do believe that we're going to learn some incredible things as it relates to how we can love and support kids in a, in a different way moving forward. So once again, thank you, Dan. Ladies and gentlemen, have a, have a wonderful day and uh, be well. listening to Leading Education with Jeff Rose, hosted by Jason Pace and Jeff Rose, and recorded at Serendipity Labs in Alpharetta, Georgia. We are produced and edited by Carson Pace. Our theme music is by Full Year of Panic. If you're listening to this on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. We'll see you next week.